0: Exodus chapter 20 and verse 15, in the context, we've read some of the context there in the following chapters of where the children of Israel are. Of course, at Mount Sinai, of course, hearing God's voice from the top of the mountain, what did that look like? Moses describes the sight at the top of the mountain the presence of god as consuming fire smoke a mountain that's quaking trembling lightning flashes sound of the trumpet god is speaking and one of those words you shall not steal you shall not steal In my own conversation with a dear friend who's now with the Lord, it was the preaching of this text that convicted him of sin and helped him to see his need of Christ. He had stolen moon pies, but he knew it was wrong. And as a teenager, when he heard the Gospel, that was something that he knew he had done against God's law and made him worthy of death, worthy of punishment before God. I don't know what you think of when you see the words, you shall not steal. I think if you look at our culture, you can certainly see that theft is rampant. Aside from any statistics, you can just watch the news and from time to time see stories about what's taking place in our world, probably seen some of the theft that's taking place in shopping malls and other places of business where people are literally pulling up right to the doors, jumping out of their vehicles and in an organized fashion just ransacking the store. Without consequence, at least immediately, I read a story about some thieves who had over $10,000 of merchandise in their possession from multiple stores that they had targeted. And uh, as that story came to a conclusion, one of the comments was that the... California Highway Patrol, as they had organized some task forces around the state for the last three years, have recovered more than $19 million in stolen merchandise. And that's just what they could recover, $19 million. My guess is if we just asked one another, we could probably reference a time in our life where we ourselves either stole something, took something, or we had something stolen from us, where we had theft sort of hit home. And it's not just in terms of something that's stolen right from your presence. There are times, of course, when because of identity theft or other kinds of theft, that something can be stolen and used on your behalf in some other place, and it come to impact you. You shall not steal assumes a right of private property. Thomas Watson said property must be respected. God has set this eighth commandment as a hedge around people's homes, property, and possessions, and this hedge cannot be broken without sin. If all things are held in common, there can be no theft, and so this commandment would be in vain. That might, as I read that statement, it made me think of the time in the early church when things were held in common. The congregation, Luke says, of those who believe were of one heart and one soul. Not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And that's certainly a time when God's grace and God's giving of generosity to those people help them to loosely hold to the things of the world to the point where they're willing to give. But Luke goes on to say that there was not a needy person among them for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them, okay, personal property, private property, and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet. So that was the kind of generosity and giving that was taking place in the early church. And then Barnabas is highlighted as one who encouraged the church because he sold a tract of land, brought it, and laid it at the apostles' feet. But then what happens next? That gift, as observed by the church... As it was observed by Ananias and Sapphira, they wanted to do the same thing for the sake of the notoriety, but they didn't want to give everything from what they sold. They also sold a piece of property. And as they sold it, they gave part of it, but the impression was they were giving all of it to the Lord just like Barnabas did but there was something in the heart of Ananias that wanted to take. He certainly wanted to take glory for himself, but he also wanted to take some of that money. And so though he presented it as if he had given everything, he was taking, and Sapphira was conspiring along with him, and of course the Lord took both of their lives because of their lie to the church. But what was at heart there... Greed, covetousness, selfish and excessive desire in one definition for more. They had, they wanted to give, but they also wanted to take at the same time. I think there you see as other places in God's word, like the story of Gehazi, that really the issue here is the heart. You shall not steal goes Again, to the heart. It's not just the action of taking, it's the heart in taking. It's the desire that leads to that unauthorized, illegal, sinful taking. You remember the story of Gehazi? It was Gehazi who was present when Naaman the Syrian came to Elisha. Elisha told him, because of his leprosy, to go wash in the Jordan, and he did. And he was healed. There's more to the story, obviously. But Gehazi was the one who, when Naaman offered a present to Elisha, Elisha said no. But Gehazi, as he watched that money and that present go away, he said, I'm going to go get something. I'm going to go take something from that man. And so under false pretense that Elisha had some need, he went and he took And he also got, he got more than what he was expecting because the very same leprosy that had been taken away from Naaman was now given to Gehazi. And Elisha asked him, is it a time for the gathering of, and he mentions a series of possessions, is it really a time for that? Achan is another story. God had prohibited Israel from taking anything from the battle of Jericho, but what happened in Achan's heart, and he later admits, is that when he saw that garment, and when he saw the gold and silver, he coveted it, and he took it. And the result was trouble for Israel, trouble in the battle. And then trouble for Achan and his family as he and his family who knew of the sin were all stoned for stealing from God. This command, you shall not steal, does have at, you would say, one level of focus on relationships with people. Sometimes the law is said to have two tables. The first table dealing with man's relationship with God first four commandments, and then the last six, the second table, man's relationship with other men. But we know, even looking at the previous command, that adultery is one of those sins that can be committed spiritually. You can be faithless in terms of your relationship with God. You can also steal from God. And that is made apparent as the law is given and then the prophets call for obedience to the law. This commandment from a positive standpoint guards the rights of ownership and private property. And it acknowledges, as you can see, that people come to own something, it becomes their private possession, but that ultimately comes from God. Anything that we have comes from God. Psalm 24.1, the earth is the Lord's, the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell in it. So God owns everything, but God distributed to man. He gave it to Adam in the garden. Psalm 115 verse 16 said, the heavens are the heavens of the Lord, but the, the earth he has given to the sons of men. And he gave Adam dominion, at creation and then as you see the pages of scripture unfold he's giving lands and possessions to people sometimes due to sin sinfulness god takes that away and that's i think if you read through genesis through deuteronomy you see god both distributing but also taking away and get into joshua too but taking away at some in some cases land and property because of the sins that are being uh, committed there and God eventually took the holy land or the promised land away from those who possessed it and gave it to Israel as a judgment he redistributed that holy land to his own people and remember the tribes as they came into the holy land and they were given a portion of that land and that land belonged to them and their families and so forth David recognized that what was given to him came from God even the battles that he fought when God gave him the victory he acknowledged that the spoils from those battles belonged to the Lord and he was able to give from those spoils for the building of the temple but when he dedicated those things David said blessed are you O Lord our God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the dominion, the victory and the majesty, and indeed everything that is in the heavens and the earth. Yours is the dominion, O Lord, and you exalt yourself as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. And in your hand is power and might, and it lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone, and then he praises the Lord." When he gave those things to the Lord, he says, from your own hand, we've given to you. We're just giving back what you have given to us. Solomon recognized that riches come from God. He said in Ecclesiastes 5, Furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he's also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. This is the gift of God. What did Job say? Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I shall return there. The Lord gave. And the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. What had God given Job? Well, read Job. It wasn't just children. It was children. But God had given him wealth. And at the end of the book of Job, there's a restoration of that wealth. But Job recognized the source of that wealth. And we would do well to recognize, too, what God has given to us. Are you grateful for what God has given? Are you grateful, even as Solomon referenced labor, are you grateful for the means to obtain what you have? Are you grateful for his providence in your life and for the gift now of stewarding what He has given you? It would be a good thing to just take the time to stop and think about what God has given you and give Him thanks. This comes from Him. J.C. Ryle said, Thankfulness is a flower which will never bloom well excepting upon a root of deep humility. And that's a part of it being thankful for what you have, part of that is recognizing that you don't deserve it. In fact, what do you deserve? What do I deserve? We deserve a hot place in an eternal hell. And yet God has given us a place in this world. And if He's blessed us materially... And certainly, he blesses in many other ways. We shouldn't be grateful just for material things, but if he blesses us in some way, we've got to give him thanks. So, in the very least, giving him thanks for the food that we receive. But beyond that, as he supplies. And when we think about his supply and we look around in this world, we can get envious. We could look at someone like, a Barnabas and wish that we had that kind of wealth. But God is sovereign even in what He allows in our lives, too. I like what Wilhelm Abrackel said in a, our reasonable service, it's a systematized theological work. He said it is not true that everyone has an equal right to and equally and will, uh, would equally enjoy each portion of this world. However, just as God is a portion came into Israel by lot, He likewise gives everyone His portion in this world, giving the one greater portion than the other. That portion He will have no more and no less. Man must be satisfied with this portion, And expect it from the Lord by the means which have been ordained to that end. What Abarco points to there is, of course, God's sovereignty in what comes into our hands to steward. You can see that in the parable of the stewards in the Gospels. Each steward is not given the same amount, but the master is evaluating the steward based upon their stewardship of what they received. But he also references the means that have been ordained to the end of obtaining those things in this world that he would give to us to steward. In other words, some of what comes into our hand, we have to earn. It's not just given to us. And that's how wealth and possessions are usually distributed. It's as God has given us the privilege of working in this world that he's given, and then obtaining that whatever private property it may be, and then we are stewards of it. Yes, some of it is for ourselves. Some of it is to give away generosity. But that recognition is also a part here, I think, of this commandment. You shall not steal references, private property. How does that come into our possession? It comes through work. Work is a part of what God has ordained to obtain those things. Now that principle certainly underscores uh, is, is supporting that fourth commandment six days he says you shall labor and do all your work and so in obtaining whatever it is in this world that we get to steward work is a portion of that in other words there's an assumption of a work ethic in the word of god it's assumed here in the decalogue that work would be a part of our lives. Work was not part of the curse. Remember, Adam was created and then placed in the garden, and it was in the garden that he started to name the animals and came eventually to the conclusion there wasn't a helper suitable, and God made the woman. But it was, it was in their innocence that God gave them work to do. It was in the midst of a garden that Adam was to tend and to keep. And that word that's translated cultivate or tend to is a word that means to serve. And so, we serve God in this world as we work, whatever we do. Now, the fall of man into sin certainly made work more difficult Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden, and God cursed the ground. He said, cursed is the ground because of you in toil. You will eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles. It shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. In contrast with the fruit of the trees, not that you can't now plant trees outside of the garden, but that lush garden was, all they had to do was cultivate and keep the garden. The fruit was there, but they sinned. And isn't it interesting that as they sinned, they took. They took. Because of desire in their heart, they took something that they should not have taken. They stole, they disobeyed, they broke the commandment. But that work, again, that God has given us to do, is our responsibility. And when it comes down to it, we need to give ourselves to it. Work heartily. He even tells the slaves, Paul does in the New Testament. Do what you do heartily. Solomon said, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. So be a hard worker. And why are we talking about work when this is about theft? Well, one person said, work is the antithesis of theft. Labor replaces theft as a means of substance, and more than that, it turns the thief into a benefactor. Rather than taking what belongs to others, he gives to others what is his. So the Eighth Commandment mandates a lifestyle of generosity, of compassion, of love. To keep the eighth commandment is both to give to everyone his due, and beyond that, to sacrifice our own goods in love for others as Jesus gave his life for us. I hope and trust that you see from the teaching of the word of God that work as you're able is the way of life. God has given us work to do. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians to a group of people who needed to hear it, we urge you, brethren and to excel still more and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. He says in Second Thessalonians chapter 3, probably a more familiar one to us, for even when we were yet with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he's not to eat either. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort you in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. What is Paul saying? He's saying you're not to live off the generosity of others. And could I add in that group of others even the state? even if that's the situation in the state. And some states, of course, are organized in that way to be able to provide for citizens. And sometimes, of course, people have, because of incapacity, disability, different reasons why they cannot work. And that's not really what I'm talking about. I'm talking about those who are able Paul set an example for these Thessalonians, as he says in 1 Thessalonians You recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as to not be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. So, as Paul was preaching the gospel there at Thessalonica, and he did in other places as well, he worked so that they wouldn't have to support him so that he could preach the gospel to them so that the church could be planted there. Now, Paul later said, I have the right to be supported by the gospel, but in the case of the Corinthians and the case of the Thessalonians, he didn't so that they would learn that work was a part of life. you could read through the book of Acts and see Paul at times, not all the time, but at times picking up his tent-making skills and using them as he was an apostle seeking to reach out for the sake of the gospel. And sometimes it just comes down to that principle being instilled in your mind. I'm thankful for parents who taught uh, work through just life. And if we were trying to get the house or the yard cleaned up, there were chores and responsibilities, and that's a good thing. We don't always like them, do we? As children, we don't like to do those things. We'd rather be playing, but the reality is sometimes going out and weeding the garden builds a little character. And obviously there are temptations to try to, as you come into the place where you're managing your own finances and providing for yourself, there, comes, there come occasions where you might seek to obtain money through other means, not talking about wise investment, but through schemes to try to get money in your pocket from someone else without the work. When I worked for a business at one point, there was a few employees who were involved in a kind of a pyramid marketing scheme. And beyond the ethics of the scheme itself, there was a non-compete agreement where the customers of the business where they're working were not to be used for any other purpose, but these employees started to do uh, double duty as they talked to customers and they would ask them if they wanted to be a part of this pyramid marketing thing. One of my fellow employees got fired. The other who was less involved but needed to be rebuked, my Supervisor at the time, the manager of that office, pulled him in and he said, As a Christian, how are you supposed to earn your living? As he asked the question and was getting kind of a non answer, he said, By the sweat of your brow. As I was told that story, because I wasn't in the office at the time, I realized, yeah, that's exactly what God's Word says. I'm thankful for that supervisor, that he himself was a person who had that work ethic. And it really, when you think about work, when you think about what God has given us to do, God has given us the means to not only provide for ourselves, but then as we're able to give to others as well. And so, generosity on the part of the Apostle Paul as he taught those Thessalonican Christians. And as he taught the Ephesians, he referenced this commandment and he said, Let him who stole do what? Steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, so that he may have to give to him who needs. That. Work ethic for the Christian just flips everything around, and certainly we don't steal, but beyond that, we not only make for ourselves, but then we have to give to those who are in need. So, you shall not steal references that work ethic. It is the antithesis of that. I think that author was right. Well, what is, when he says you shall not steal, what's he talking about? What exactly is prohibited here? There's a guarding of private property and possessions, but there's also a prohibition of theft, stealing of any and every kind. If you just look up a dictionary definition, theft is a dishonest appropriation of another's property with intent to, to bribe him or her of it permanently. Uh, a brockle defines it more simply just to take the possessions of na- our neighbors for ourselves the perpetrator does this knowingly without the knowledge of or contrary to the will of the owner it means to take without the owner's consent and in a generic sense the word that's translated steal here means to carry away it's used as job says in job 21 verse 18 are they not as straw before the wind are they as straw before the wind like the chaff which the storm carries away same word carrying it off But the Hebrew word is used in a couple different senses. If you turn back to Genesis chapter 31, as we stay in the law here, look at the narrative of Genesis. Genesis 31, remember when Jacob lived with Laban and he was given Leah and then Rachel And as he worked for Rachel, he thought, for the first seven years and then found out that he was given Leah. He then worked seven more. And then he worked six years for the stuff, the wealth that he obtained. And then as he obtained that, look at verse 1 of Genesis 31. It says, Now Jacob heard the words of Laban's son, saying, Jacob has taken away all that was our father's, and from what belonged to our father, he has made all this wealth. Now, that's not actually the word. And Jacob, when he obtained what he obtained under Laban, it was through faithful hard work. If you look at the chapter, and Laban doesn't deny it, Laban actually changed Jacob's wages ten times. And yet, look at verse 7 as he tells his wives that, yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. However, God did not allow him to hurt me. And then the Lord tells him by way of a dream that the reason that he has what he has is that God blessed him in spite of all that Laban was doing to try to bring him harm. Well then, Jacob, after seeing Laban's sons and their attitudes and hearing the dream from God to return to Bethel. He leaves, and as he leaves, uh, let's just read what Rachel and Leah say. Verse 14, Rachel and Leah said to him, Do we still have any portion or inheritance in our father's house? Are we not reckoned by him as foreigners? For he has sold us and has also entirely consumed our purchase price. Surely all the wealth which God has taken away from our father belongs to us and our children. Now then, do whatever God has said to you. And so Jacob takes off along with his family. But as he takes off, notice what happens. Look down at verse 19. When Laban, before they go, when Laban had gone to shear his flock, then Rachel stole, that's our word, the household idols that were her father's. And Jacob deceived Laban the Aramean by not telling him that he was fleeing. Now what's interesting is that same word that is translated, verse 20, deceived is the same word for stole. And you ever hear the phrase someone stole away into the night? That there's an element of deception in what Jacob did. And that seems to be somewhat of the story of Jacob's life. Now, the story goes on, and that those household idols become a focus, and even Jacob didn't know. If you look at the end of verse 32, Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. There's the same word. So you're talking about acquiring something, and this is, this is within a household, by the way. It's within an extended family where one family member stole something that belonged to another. So even within the context of a family, possessions, property is acknowledged. But it's that element of secrecy, it's that element of taking that I think is at the heart of this word. And as you look at the rest of the uses of this word... In this chapter, but you also look at it in other places, you'll see that it refers to theft, taking property, possession from someone else. Turn over, if you would, to Exodus chapter 22. Exodus 22. The Bible makes it clear that theft or stealing from other people is a sin worthy of civil punishment as well as divine punishment. And retribution, if a person is caught, there is to be restoration, not just restoration, but restitution, and we'll, make a, uh, uh, we'll look at that in just a moment. Look at verse 1 of Exodus 22, if a man steals an ox or a sheep, and, notice what happens to the sheep, slaughters it or sells it, he shall pay five oxen for the ox and four sheep for the sheep. Uh, chapter 21 speaks about stealing a person. Verse 16 of 21, He who kidnaps a man, whether he sells him or he is found in his possession, he shall surely be put to death. But the word kidnap there is the same word of stealing. Uh, Turn, if you would, to Deuteronomy chapter 23. In Israel, there was provision If you were to enter into your neighbor's vineyard or his field, there was provision in a time of need to be able to obtain from that neighbor food. Verse 24, When you enter your neighbor's vineyard, then you may eat grapes until you're fully satisfied, but you shall not put any in your basket. There's a line that's crossed. Look at verse 25. When you enter your neighbor's standing grain, Then you may pluck the heads with your hand, but you shall not wield a sickle in your neighbor's standing grain. What's the difference? The difference is you're actually entering into theft. Not just taking in a time of need with that provision. Specifically, it's food. And it's not very much. And it's allowed in the law. But if you're there with a basket and you're filling it, you're now stealing Jeremiah 22 pronounces a woe upon those who use their neighbor's services without pay and does not give him his wages. James chapter 5 in the New Testament pronounces a woe or judgment against the rich who are, and James says, "...behold the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields, and which has been withheld by you, cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth, or the Lord of armies." So it's possible to steal by not giving someone their due. In the case of work done, no wages paid, And James actually is talking about that silver or gold that's crying out because it doesn't belong to you anymore. It actually belongs to the people who worked, and so that's where it needs to go. Otherwise, it's theft. Turn over, if you would, to Deuteronomy 25, maybe just a page over or so. Verse 13. Verse 13. You shall have not have in your bag differing weights, a large and a small. You shall not have in your house differing measures, a large and a small. You shall have a full and just weight, you shall have a full and just measure, that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. If it's a deli, that means that your machine that weighs out the meat or the cheese or whatever it might be needs to be calibrated correctly so that when you put it on the scale, it accurately reflects what it is. That the weight that you are saying that it is actually is what it is and when that sticker is placed on the bag that that's actually what you're paying for. Norman Rockwell has a picture, it's called Tipping the Scales, you've probably seen it if you've seen any of a lot of Norman Rockwell's uh, paintings and the painting is of a woman on one side and a man who has, he looks like he works in a deli, he's got a hat on, glasses and in between them is a, one of these hanging scales where the measuring is at the top. You can see the scale at the top. And then uh, the, the, the basket or whatever it is here has a turkey on it. Okay, And they're, they're both looking up at the scale. And as the butcher, or deli worker, whoever it is, has his eyes on the scale, he has a finger like this. And as the woman on the other side has... She's looking up at the scale too, but she has her finger like this. What are they doing? One is trying to make that turkey weigh less because she wants to pay less. And obviously the butcher wants more. Or maybe the one is trying to adjust the other's intention because the person was known for having tipped the scales. So I was thinking about that, reflecting upon it. If the intent of both is to deceive the other, either way, you've got capturing there the human heart and the tendency to steal, to take what does not belong. And even if it's a few cents or more than a dollar for something at the grocery store, it's still theft. So the stealing by unjust weights and measurements, God specifies to the Israelites that this was not to take place among them, that particularly as the command is given, that should in no way come into the possession of someone so that they have in their house two different standards, so that when it favors them, they use one standard, and when it doesn't, they use the other Watson described, Thomas Watson described this passage and the use of these kinds of measures. He said, these who do this by deception give customers less than what was promised by making their weights lighter. People make their accounts heavier. Now, we could probably scan the Word of God and see lots of different examples of theft but just listen to all the terms that have been developed even within our culture burglary breaking into a home or business to steal something robbery using something uh, using force to take something from someone uh, larceny shoplifting carjacking hijacking embezzlement a lot of times embezzlement hits the news when it's in a large number Taking something from your place of business, appropriating something that belongs to the business for yourself. It hits the news when it's such a large number, but how much of it takes place and it never hits the news pages? People who are stealing things from their workplace. Taking something that they are authorized to use, but not for themselves. That's not the purpose of it. That petty cash was not there so that you could go buy something for yourself unless that's within the arrangement somehow. But usually it wouldn't be. It'd be for something for the business. Extortion, using authority or threats to obtain money, racketeering, price gouging, identity theft in these days... I learned about different kinds of identity theft, not just the taking someone's identity to get a loan, but sometimes to get medical services or all sorts of other things. I'm currently reading the story of a woman whose mom stole her identity. And by the time she realized it, she was 19, and she had obtained her first credit report. And it was destroyed. That's how she's starting out her adult life. There's also borrowing. I'm not talking about borrowing itself as a sin, but borrowing and never intending to pay back. Psalm 37, verse 21, The wicked borrows and does not pay back, but the righteous is gracious and gives. What does Elisha counsel, the woman who was in debt, who was about to have her children taken away as slaves? He told her to get every possible container to start filling them with oil. And as she filled them with oil, God multiplied that oil, provided for her. And when she had all that oil, Elisha said, pay your debts and then live off the rest. She'd put herself in a difficult position, or maybe she was put into a difficult position, but the purpose that Elisha gave to her was to take care of that, to pay back what you have borrowed. And then those who sometimes lend can take from those that they lend to because of either high fees, high interest rates. This was not to be done in Israel. Uh, Leviticus chapter 25, let's turn over there for a few moments. Leviticus, as God gave instructions to his people. Leviticus twenty-five thirty-five. Now, in case a countryman of yours becomes poor and his means with regard to you falter, Then you are to sustain him like a stranger or a sojourner, that he may live with you. Do not take usurious interest from him, but revere your God that your countrymen may live with you. You shall not give him your silver at interest, nor your food for gain. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. If you were to continue reading through that chapter, you see that God cared for those who were poor. He cared for those who, through whatever circumstance, got themselves through their own decisions or some circumstance into a situation of poverty, and He even guards them from being slaves or becoming slaves to their countrymen because God says, these are my people, these are my slaves. You're not to use them as your own slaves. There was a graciousness that was to be present between those who had and those who didn't. And so charging interest when someone was in need, especially high levels of interest, was against the law. God's purpose was for his people to live together. And certainly, even with the year of Jubilee and all that would happen then, those who got themselves into a situation where they had borrowed, there was an obligation to repay. But eventually, God Himself alleviated that burden by His grace once in a long time. I don't know that we've covered every single possibility. I'm sure there are other forms of theft. I think we've gotten the idea have said a little bit, but we could say more about stealing from God. I want to ask you to turn over to Malachi chapter 3, last book of our Old Testament. Will a man rob, defraud God? Verse 8 says, Malachi 3, Yet you are robbing me. That's the charge. But you say, how have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings is the answer. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. The charge here is that Israel had gotten into a situation where they were not bringing in what God had specified in the law. For the Levites, for the work of the house of God, they were not bringing in the tithe or their offerings, and what God characterized it as was robbing him. Notice his command, verse 10, "...bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, so that there may be food in my house, and test me now in this," says the Lord of hosts, "...if I will not open for you the windows of heaven, and pour out for you blessing until it overflows." Then I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of the ground, nor will your vine in the field cast its grapes, says the Lord of hosts. All the nations will call you blessed, for you shall be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. So the rebuke here is of a people who had gotten focused on something else themselves and they weren't giving to God. Nehemiah, in chapter 13 of the book of Nehemiah, had to deal with this sin. When he realized that this kind of sin was taking place, the consequence of it was that the Levites, who were supposed to receive that, then had to go work for their living elsewhere. Nehemiah also saw that they were charging interest and other things to their brethren, and he had to rebuke them and call them to bring their tithe into the storehouse. And that's literally what it is. If you look at verse 10, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. The tithe for an Israelite was food. It was product of the land, 10%. And if you look at the details, it's not just the tithe, but offerings as well. Free will offerings were a part of that provision. Honor the Lord, Proverbs 3 says, from your wealth and from the first of all your produce, so your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. That is wisdom. That's in keeping with the law. And you can look at that and say, well, yes, but we're not under law. We're under grace, right? The New Testament is the new covenant. It's not the old covenant. And the New Testament, no, does not command the tithe. But you do have a godly example on the part of Abraham, Jacob, and within the law itself, that principle of a tithe, which as a Christian, you think about your own giving and your giving to the Lord and to the Lord's work. I hope that when we look at the Word of God and we see that principle, that's something to guide us, to give us direction towards Is it mandated? Is it an obligation? Is it a duty? Well, that's debatable. The New Testament example, I read one writer who said, if you check it out and you look at New Testament giving, it's beyond the tithe. Whenever there's instances of New Testament giving, it's beyond that. And I have yet to fully search that out. I thought it was an interesting statement. The same author makes the point that tithing is kind of like the training wheels of giving. It's the beginning of giving. And giving is a part of our life of faith. As we give, based on the teaching in 2 Corinthians, certainly other places as well, generously, cheerfully, voluntarily, the Lord loves a cheerful giver. And is it a thermometer of our faith, as someone has said? I think so. You may not be able to give what you'd like to be able to give, but are you giving? And are you giving? Ultimately, this is for the Lord. It's for the Lord's work. And you might say, I can't tithe based upon my circumstances, maybe the situation that I'm in. I think you'll find, and over time, I think we're all tested at different times in our life, but as you give, God does bless. Uh, As you give, the Lord does things that we do not expect. And so I just want to encourage all of us, and we all go through hard times. I'm not trying to discourage anyone this morning, but remember, Jesus did say, We're not to lay up for ourselves treasures on earth. We lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven. How do we do that? Well, we don't put our money down on things on this earth primarily. Yes, we have to live. But my goal and my my pursuit in this life should not be what you might call the American dream or whatever it is that the worldlings talk about when they think about life in this world and its value. This life is not all there is. And it was the rich fool, remember, who laid up in his barns. He built new barns to contain all the stuff, and he was called a fool. Why? Because that night, his life was going to be required of him. And when his life was required, all of that stuff that he obtained didn't go into his casket, or in that case, didn't go into his probably stone-covered tomb. And even if it did, like the pharaohs, the pharaohs aren't enjoying all that wealth. So may the Lord help us to certainly not rob God by not giving what a portion of what he has given to us. Is tithing the training wheels? I think so. I think that's a beginning, and as we realize the value of the Lord's work and want to support the Lord's work, we give, and we give generously. We look at the New Testament, and you see examples of that. Now, real quickly, what is the consequence of theft? You shall not steal. What's the consequence? Well, obviously, it's a breaking of God's law, if you do. It makes a person worthy, even if it's a moon pie, of eternal separation from God. Do you not know, Paul said, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves covetous, drunkards, revilers, swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. The word that's used there is kleptes. It's the word from which we get the word kleptomaniac, somebody who steals without even an economic motive. The person who lives and that's their life that is characterized by thievery, not murder, not adultery, but That. They will not inherit the kingdom. One author said stealing is a sin against God in at least two ways. First, every theft is a failure to trust in His provision. Whenever we take something that doesn't belong to us, we deny that God has given us or is able to give us everything we truly need. Therefore, keeping the eighth commandment is a practical exercise of our faith in God's providence. So it's a sin against God. So it's a sin, it's a lack of faith. And then he said, every sin or every theft is also an assault on God's providence for others. This is a second way that stealing is sin. It robs what he has provided for someone else. It's taking what he's provided, taking it for yourself. Obviously, it's a sin against your neighbor, it does put you in debt to them. When you steal, you are now in debt. Because the Bible not only teaches it's a sin to steal, but it also teaches the importance of restitution. Not just restoration, but restitution. Restoration would be, I returned the thing that I stole. Restitution is paying for the damage. And that's why it's five oxen in the place of one, or four sheep in the place of one. Now, if the sheep is found in your possession, there's still two sheep that you have to give back. There was a restoration, but also a doubling of that. So you actually put yourself in debt by stealing. You can see those principles in Exodus 22, which we looked at. The harm that is brought by the loss of that item, and you can't calculate that. You don't know what that person was going to use whatever you stole for. You might think, well, they have so much, they're not even going to miss it. That doesn't make it any less of a sin in the eyes of God. Could there be a thief among God's people? Judas was a thief. He was in a trusted position. When Mary used her expensive ointment to anoint Jesus' feet, he said, spiritual sounding concern, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? But John said, you know why he said that? His concern was not about the poor. His concern was, John said, Now he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Yes, there could be a thief among God's people. Judas was, and no one really suspected him. That gospel is written long after when somehow the disciples realized that Judas had been taking for himself. There are some sins, Paul said, that, that are found out in life. There are some sins that follow men to the judgment that you don't find out until that day. But praise the Lord, there's forgiveness for the repentant thief. Zacchaeus met Jesus, and when he met Jesus, he told Jesus, half of my possessions I'm going to give to the poor. If I've defrauded anyone, I will give back four times as much. There was not just repentance, but restitution, restoration for those he had taken from as a tax collector. He had confessed his sin. He had told the Lord of his purpose, went on record, this is what I'm going to do. And Christ said, salvation has come to your house. Literally, Jesus had come to his house, but he also had worked in Zacchaeus' heart. That Zacchaeus, that one who had grabbed for money and stolen from others, was now willing to give half of his possessions to the poor and restore the rest. There was a transformation, and there is a transformation. When the gospel comes to a person's heart who is a thief, they realize they've sinned, and they're to steal no more, but rather they are to work and labor with their hands so that they can then give. Make sure, Peter said, that none of you suffers as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he's not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. So there really shouldn't be a Christian who's also a thief. That's not what we are. If we've done it, we need to repent of it. we need to renew our minds there were two thieves on either side of the cross one of them told the other we're getting what we deserve he confessed and acknowledged his sin and then what did he say remember me Lord when you come into your kingdom Is there forgiveness? Yes, there's forgiveness. And there's paradise. He said, today you'll be with me in paradise. God is gracious and good enough to forgive us of our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And as he does, he then sets us in a path where our lives can not be a curse and bring damage to others, but now a blessing to others. May the Lord help us. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we confess this sin of stealing, of theft is what's in our wicked heart. If we have sinned in this way, Lord, help us to repent. If we find ourselves in a path where we have been sinning in this way and have not repented, Lord, help us to examine our ways and see if we're even in the faith. And if we are, Lord, and we need to turn, help us to turn today, whatever the consequence may be, knowing, Lord, that you're a forgiving God. You forgave that thief on the cross next to you, Lord Jesus. Thank you that you did gives us hope, gives us joy in the message of the gospel and in the one who is the gospel in person, the Lord Jesus, who saves people from their sins. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.